the gospel this morning is from John 1, 35 through 42. Uh, it begins the next day, and so you will remember that on the day previous, John the Baptist had encountered Jesus and said to his own disciples, uh, behold, the Lamb of God. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day. It was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. This is the gospel. morning. Am I on with this? I think. Yes? A little bit? Move it up a little bit. Is that good? Okay, great. Good morning. Um, my name is Sam. I'm an assistant pastor here. Uh, Mike, who's talking before, if you didn't already hear that, um, is the, I mean, I guess he has a more obscure, boring title, but he's basically the interim senior pastor. If you're visiting, then welcome. Um, we'd love to meet up with you and, oh, there you are. We'd love to meet up with you and grab coffee and hear your story. Um, so, uh, yeah, we'd, we'd love to meet you after service. Uh, to start out, um, this, this passage about following Jesus and discipleship and um, the first time Jesus meets these disciples, uh, I, I want to ask a question. Why do we read autobiographies and memoirs? Why do we like them so much? Usually they're one of the top-selling genres of, of books that there is, but why? Why do we like them? I mean, for most of them, if, if you're reading a book about someone, you probably already know the basic facts about them. You've heard of them, uh, maybe you've, you've watched their movies or listened to their music or whatever, but you, you know the facts about them, usually, so why are we reading stuff that they wrote? You could just look up facts on Wikipedia but I'd, I'd argue that one of the main reasons that we like these so much, that we like memoirs, that we like autobiographies, is because even though we see this kind of front, we see what they do, either the music they make or the movies or, you know, the reason that they're famous and why we're reading the book, they give us a chance to kind of peel back the curtain. They give us a chance to look behind the scenes, see what was going on in their lives or in their heads. And we like that. We like hearing the juicy stuff. We want the juicy stuff. We want the drama. We want to hear, you know, I, I saw you on TV doing this, or I, I heard you did this, but what was really going on, like, in your head? What were the, what were the questions? What, was the, what, what were you wrestling with then? What was the reason 
why, why did you choose to do this instead of this? We, we want that. We don't want to just, you know, if, if we really appreciate someone or we're interested in someone, we don't want to leave it at just what we see, what everybody sees. We want to peel back the curtain and, and look at what was going on, what, were, what was going on psychologically and emotionally and what were you thinking and feeling in these big moments. I recently read a, um, an autobiography, I guess it was more of a memoir, by a rapper that I listened to named Lecrae. Some of you have heard of him. And he kind of peeled back the curtain. He was pretty vulnerable in this recent biography that he wrote. And it allowed me to kind of see what was going on, why he wrote some of the things that he did in his songs. And so listening to some of his songs now, like the, the forward front-facing things that everybody heard, I can understand a little bit more. I can see, oh, there was, there's trauma behind that, or there was like, you know, some, some deep feelings that was going on there, maybe some things that you didn't even know was going on in your life when you wrote that, but now I can understand it because you processed those things and were vulnerable, vulnerable about them. You, you want those things when you read an autobiography or a memoir. And when you read one of those and it's just more fronting, right? It's just more like, yeah, this happened. And there's no like internal processing of that or, you know, behind the scenes details. We can feel kind of, um, we can feel kind of shortchanged, I think. The cardinal sin of autobiographies and memoirs is to leave that stuff out. Um, and as I've thought about that this week, I think that's the reason why I've always come to these passages where the disciples are being introduced, um, not only in John, but in Matthew, Mark, and Luke especially, I've felt shortchanged, fleeced, flim-flammed, bamboozled. Like, I, I feel like there's stuff going on there that I'm not being told. Because what it seems like from these Gospels is that, you know, there's just this guy named Jesus coming along, and the disciples are over there fishing, or I guess they fished with nets, right? So they're fishing, and Jesus says, hey, come follow me. And then they quit their jobs, you know, chuck some deuces, deuces to the fish and leave their homes, their families, everything, and go follow this guy. And I just feel like that's super unrealistic, right? And so I feel like I'm not being told What's going on here? And these are memoirs, too. It was actually um, the Greek, the closest Greek word that we have to memoirs is what a lot of the early church fathers used to describe the Gospels. Justin Martyr called the Gospels the memoirs of the apostles. So when I read these, I'm expecting, I want, what was going on in your head when this happened? And I feel like I don't get it. So I've always been a little, I don't know, uneasy or um, not suspicious of them, like I it wasn't a thing where I distrust them, but it was more of a thing where I, I just felt like there was stuff going on that can't include everything, right? And they just didn't include that. So I've got to think about how crazy this was for them, how excruciating, how much of an existential crisis must they have had? Man, should I follow Jesus or should I stay here with my family, with my job, with my, you know? So... My options right now with this passage are to, one, believe that that did happen. They had, they had an existential crisis. They had all these deep questions and inner turmoil. Should I go? Should I not? Should I follow? Should I stay here? That's one option. Number two, second option, they were gullible. This is kind of a, reading this with modern eyes, it's like, you just, like you, 
you left your job because this random guy just walked by and said, follow me? You believed he was the Messiah? There was a bunch of people probably calling themselves the Messiah around this time. Wouldn't have been the only one. There's, and even if they're not calling their, themselves the Messiah, there's a bunch of people that think they have the answers. They know God. They have the way to God. Why are you, you're just going to drop it and leave it? They seem gullible to us, especially listening with modern ears to this. Or three, option three, something else. And that's what I'm going to talk about today is the something else. There's a third option to understand what was going on with them. Uh, we're in a series on the Gospel of John, obviously. Um, and if you want to turn with me, if you already haven't, um, it's the earth, unless you already have, it's uh, John 135 to 42. Um, like Bruce said, uh, we've talked, we're, we're kind of in a, um, in a thing where, in this passage, where it's talking about one day, this happened one day, this happened the next day, this happened the next day. We're on day three, um, the first day after the beginning of Jesus's, or as the start of Jesus's ministry, um, Dave preached on the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist. And then, like Bruce said last week, Mike talked about the statement by John the Baptist that Jesus is the Lamb of God. And now we're in this part where John the Baptist is pointing out Jesus as the, as the guy. This is, this is the guy. This is the guy who's um, going to take away the sin of the world. This is the Lamb of God. And so they start following. Um, they start following here. And if you read the other Gospels, you might be a little bit confused because the other Gospels have, it, it reads a little bit different in the other ones. Um, it's actually a completely different narrative. So this, in John's Gospel, John is describing the first time Jesus meets these disciples. The other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, bleh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are talking, the Synoptic Gospels are talking about what happened after that? So they, this is the first experience they had with Jesus, and then um, those those other gospels are talking about a, a later experience Jesus has with them. So this is the first time they're meeting. So uh, let's read, starting in verse thirty-five. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. So these disciples, it's going to tell us later in the passage that um, one of these disciples is Andrew who is Simon Peter's brother and later goes to get, in our passage, Simon Peter. The other disciple in this passage is never named. And so um, it's, it's almost assumed by commentators at this point that this is actually the author of the book, John, the son of Zebedee. That he, because the, the, the author of this book never actually names himself within this. He calls himself the beloved disciple. Um, he, he kind of references himself in a couple other ways, but um, in the other Gospels, he's always talked about as one of the first disciples to be called. And so it's, it's pretty clear here that the unnamed disciple, and there's also some other um, kind of uh, clues in the rest of this passage that we'll talk about, but the other disciple here is John. So he's actually writing, back to the kind of memoir idea, this is him writing about an experience that he had with Jesus. This is, a, this is very much a first-person account of, this is the day I met Jesus. And we can see that later in, the, later in this text. He says, oh, this happened about 4 p.m. Well, he remembers that. You would remember the day that you met Jesus, and so he, he remembers details like that. He's talking about his own story. This is personal to him. 
So at this point, all we know about these two people is that they followed John the Baptist, this guy that we talked about for a couple weeks. But what does this actually tell us? Does, does this actually tell us anything about them? Um, why, why did people follow John the Baptist? Um, when I think about that, it is kind of a weird thing. Like, we've heard about John the Baptist all the time. But if you're living in that area, like if we thought about, uh, there, man, there's this person in St. Louis... And he's, he's wearing camel hair, and he's eating locusts, and he's like, you know, I don't know where the wilderness would be for us, maybe somewhere over by the river, somewhere, you know, by an abandoned industrial plant or something. We'd not feel any inclination to go to that person. What does it take in a society, what does it take in their religious and cultural climate for people to be like, yeah, that's a guy I'm going to go to religious advice for, like... I'm going to go listen to John the Baptist while he's popping locusts in his mouth, right? That's not a natural thing. In fact, I'd argue that for people to go to him, the religious and cultural climate there would have to be pretty messed up. So if everything is working right in society, you don't go to John the Baptist. But here, here were the, just to give you kind of a, a picture of what's going on right now, here were the four main religious groups um, the four main Jewish re- religious groups in Israel at this time. So you had the Pharisees, and we've heard a lot about the Pharisees from if you've read the Gospels before. They were the ruling group. They um, uh, were criticized by Jesus for adding laws um, to people to um, uh, kind of put themselves over others, and they were criticized for being hypocrites. They had a lot of the right, Jesus, you know, said they, you know, had a lot of the right theology, but... In their hearts, they were power-grabbing. They were hypocrites. They were putting laws on other people to oppress them. So Pharisees, there was the the Sadducees, and they were um, a group that was more Hellenized. They had been more influenced by Greek culture. Um, They were a lot more cozy with the Roman government that was over the Israelites at the time. And they were more theologically liberal than the Pharisees were. Jesus, at certain points actually warns against the Sadducees, and he um, includes them, even though they were completely different groups, he includes them with the Pharisees and saying that they're a brood of vipers. There was the Zealots, and the Zealots were a Jewish religious group that they wanted to take over the government. They did not, I mean, most faithful Jews around that time did not like um, the influence that the Roman government had on um, the Jewish faith, and so they wanted to take back Israel by force from Rome. So there's the Zealots. And there's the Essenes who were secluded. They drew back from society. They were out in the wilderness. Um, a lot of people consider John the Baptist to actually have been an Essene. But he was a lot different from most of them. Um, because the Essenes were kind of, they were, they were drawn back. They were very secretive and uh, secluded. They, did not, they, they didn't care about the rest of Israel. They wanted the truth to themselves. And so when Jesus says, don't hide your light under a bushel, he might have actually been talking about the Essenes. And so if you were an Israelite around that time and you wanted to worship God, like you actually just had a, a, a pure desire to worship God. I want true religion. I, I, I want to, to seek Yahweh. I want to do what he says. If you're looking out, there's not a lot of options. This is it? Like, th- these are the only places I can go? These are the people that are 
telling me how to worship? Man, that's not working. It's not working. There's so much power, power grabbing and greed and sin out there in all of those groups. And they're all wrong in one way or another. Fed up. There were people that were fed up with this. There were Yahweh seekers, God lovers, who wanted a way to worship in spirit and truth. And yet, the whole world, the whole religious world, the, the climate was broken. It was broken. There was so much hypocrisy. There were so many people that were fighting for power. Does that strike a chord with you this morning? Hypocrisy in the church, abuse in the church, power struggles in the church, greed in the church, groups that are disobedient to God's word on one way or the other in the church, fighting for power. I, I would argue, and this is, if you look at surveys, they'll, they'll say this too, but I, I think this will strike home for you all as well, like, when I meet with people, the number one thing, like, if I'm asking either Christians about where are you struggling in your faith, or if I'm asking non-Christians, like, you know, I'm, ta I'm trying to get to the meat of, like, you know, why aren't you, why aren't you believing this? The number one answer for both of those groups, Christians who are struggling and non-Christians who are also struggling and doubting, is Christians. Man, I... I see all of, you know, I, yeah, there's Jesus, there's truth, there's, but every morning I, I open my, you know, news app or Facebook or whatever, and I'm seeing abuse in the church. I'm seeing hypocrisy, saying one thing, doing the other. I'm seeing people who are hateful and calling themselves lovers of God. It's not two, not three, not four, not reason number five, in my opinion. It's, it's number one for people. Why does the church look like this? And I, I could rant a little bit about this, but I won't. In our apologetics, like when we have apologetics books, which is, you know, defending the faith, I'm still seeing so much like that's about postmodernism and it's answering all these intellectual questions. While our neighbor's main objection is a heart, a, a deep heartfelt, if you're representing Jesus... Why does, hate, why, does, why does Jesus hate people that look different from you or act different from you or live different from you, right? Brennan Manning, who wrote Ragamuffin Gospel, he was um, kind of a, um, a deposed priest who struggled with alcoholism. He wrote, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. This is, this is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. And in place of atheism, we could say, um, you know, the nuns, people who check none on the list of what's your religion, they don't affiliate with any religion or don't care to. Um, but... That's, that's what's going on right now. This is true also among Christians, like I said, with their faith floundering. Man, I, I just don't, I can't, I can't deal with that anymore. They're angry and they're weak and they're weary of this. 
But what's, what's, what should our response be? So I'm not going to argue with you this morning that that should not make you mad. I'm not going to argue with you that the hypocrisy and the abuse and, the, and all of the terrible things, and sometimes even the dysfunction of, our, of the very institution of the church and the local church in certain places, should not anger you. But where should we? What, what, what should that lead us to? Where should that lead us? And it's led a lot of people to walk away from Jesus. It's led a lot of people to not consider Jesus. Where should that lead us? Let's look at verse 36. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by, John the Baptist looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. Two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. So John the Baptist here, he's pointing to Jesus, and then the, two of these disciples follow. And this is, in this place, a very literal, they're actually walking behind Jesus. And that's what, that, this is the main verb that all of the Gospels use to describe the disciples, that they follow Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple. You, you follow. And at first, this was a very simple, physical thing. And then it kind of morphs, as you look at the Gospels, it morphs into, oh, they, they followed Jesus, not with their feet, but also with their heart. Not yet. That's what, that's, but it starts with the feet. It starts with they're physically following Jesus. That's what they're going to call him rabbi, and that's what people did with rabbis in that time period. They, they actually they walked behind them. They walked with them as they, as they were going from, from place to place. But what I want to highlight here is that they were looking. They were not just people who were cynically jaded by the religious hypocrisy and the messed up cultural climate of the day. Because that's what a lot of people today, that, that, that's where we go with it, right? Well, I'm just done. I'm done. I'm not going to look. I don't want to consider any of this. Like, I don't have to. You guys are messed up. I'm not going to be a part of it, right? But these disciples, they were looking. They were seeking. They said, Man, John the Baptist is out here. He seems kind of crazy, but he's saying things that actually accord with what I know of God and who, who I know God to be. And so when John the Baptist pointed at this guy and says, yeah, he's, he's the guy. This is the Lamb of God. They followed. They followed. They, they didn't, this wasn't a, a huge commitment following at this point. It would become that very soon. But they followed. They were looking. So I guess that's one of my questions to you this morning. Are you looking? Like if you're, if you're hurt by the church, if you're hurt by everything that you see happening, like all, the, all of the evil things that you see happening in the church and the hypocrisy, and this group is wrong about this, and this group is wrong about this, are you, are you looking for what is true and good and beautiful? Because cynicism can easily shut our eyes to that, right? Cynicism can hold us away from what is actually good and true and beautiful. Verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them following and said, what are you seeking? So this could be on the face of it a very, you know, obvious surface level question. Where are you going? Are you, are you following me? Is that what's happening right here? But I just mentioned that a lot of these words and phrases that John uses in this passage are, they read one way on the, on the surface... And they could have actually meant that there, but when John included them, he's including some deeper meaning there. So there's a, a quote. It's, I, I think it's, I did a little bit of rabbit trail research on this this week. It's fal this is a quote falsely attributed to Augustine, but I think it's true. John's gospel is shallow enough 
for an infant not to drown and deep enough for an elephant to swim. I think that's true because you see, you see one thing, like there's always going to be more, more layers there. And that's the same with this question. What are you seeking? What are you seeking? I was in a fraternity in college and, you know, in a fraternity you have all these like secret rituals and stuff. Probably not supposed to be sharing this in a sermon right now, but um, who cares? When you look back, they seem pretty meaningful in the moment, but when you look back, it's kind of the things, oh, that was pretty goofy, you know. But uh, so I was doing the initiation rituals for this fraternity, um, and I was blindfolded, um, as one is, and uh, led into this room that was really dark. They had black lights on. Opened up the blindfold, and there was like these, uh, I forget how many, maybe three guys um, who were covered in, in uh, hoods. Um, it wasn't a KKK thing, you know, but they were covered in hoods, and um, they started asking me questions. Who are you? Well, my name is Sam. I'm, you know, I'm from Cincinnati. I like to run. Who are you? And they repeated the, the question, maybe a little bit deeper that time. Oh, I don't know. Where are you going? Well, where am I going? I guess I'm here. I want to get a degree. And where are you going? So the second time, you know, the first time they asked the question, I was giving the, you know, my little awkward spiel of who I thought I was and where I was going. But the second time it was a deeper, it was obviously a deeper question than I thought originally. And that's kind of what Jesus is doing here. He's maybe in a less like, you know, mysterious way, but he's asking, where, what are you seeking? Why are you here? Why are you walking behind me? And I think John included that. Like, that, that obviously stuck with John, and he included it here. And he's asking the same thing of us by including this question. What are you seeking? What are you seeking? Why are you here? Why are you here right now? I mean, are we all just kind of playing church? Let's come here, let's sing some songs, let's go eat lunch. Or are, are you seeking to meet Jesus here? He's asking hard questions. Are you answering? The surface level, you know, what are you seeking? It's so easy, it's so comfortable to go surface level. Lord, you know, I, I go to church and I check my reading plan off for the day in the Bible and I do my prayer for the day. Are you seeking to know him? Do you have a desperation amidst all of this brokenness in the church and this hypocrisy and all of it, false religion? Man, Jesus, I, I need you. I need you. And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? So this is the first little explanation definition that John gives uh, that kind of goes from um, either a Hebrew or Aramaic word. So you'll see three sets of parentheses in this passage, Hebrew or Aramaic word, and he translates it to Greek because he wants people in his context that are um, speaking Greek to be able to read. Um, but he's also, he's writing to a very large audience, and so he's trying to include everybody, and that's why he's giving these little statements. Um, and so rabbi, is a, it's just a general term at that point for a religious teacher, a good religious teacher that you kind of wanted to pay attention to, you wanted to follow the advice of. So they answer a question with a question. So that could be kind of like a obfuscating question, like, you know, they're basically a, oh, how's the weather? Like they're trying to get his attention onto something else. Or could mean, you know, do you have much more longer to walk? Because we, we have a long answer to that. 
doesn't really, you know, not really an indication of that. But either way, Jesus takes him up on it and he says, come and you'll see. Where are you staying? Well, come on and find out. So they came and saw where he was staying. This is verse 39. And they stayed with them for the day, for it was about the 10th hour. And this is one of, C here is one of the other words that takes on a deeper meaning later in John. Later in John, Jesus uses the word, that same word for see, to say, if you see me, you see the Father. So they took him up on it. They said, all right, we'll, we'll, we'll come with you. So they saw where he was staying. This was probably uh, either his home or a family home. Um, he had a home early on that he later abandons at some point to go traveling around Israel. And it was about 4 p.m., it was about 4 p.m. Um, so I'm going to, uh, that was the meaning of the 10th hour there. So I want to tie this into the next two verses. So I'm going to read those. Um, so 40 and 41. One of the two who heard, heard John speak and follow Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. So the timeline, because it says first, um, so he first went and found his brother. Timeline's a bit unclear here. Um, it could mean he, first, he, he found his brother first because John had also brought his brother along. We see in the other um, uh, Gospels, James. So James is, John's brother, James, was also a disciple. Um, so he could mean, yeah, he got his brother first. I got my brother later. But it also could mean this happened the next morning. It's not super clear. But what we do know is this happened, and this is important, this happened after they met with Jesus. They stayed with Jesus and before the next passage. So in one moment, they're calling Jesus rabbi. He's a good teacher. You got some good things to say. I'm going to walk behind you for a little bit. We'll see how this goes. And then they went from that to very quickly in this passage calling Jesus the Messiah, which is a word that had gained meaning after, so the last book of the Old Testament is Malachi. There was a few hundred years in between the last book of the Old Testament and um, the New Testament. And in, that, in those hundred, you know, few hundred years, the, the, the word Messiah kind of gathered all of these strings from the Old Testament that were prophesying about this person to come who's going to restore the kingdom of Israel and lead people back to the Lord. And he calls him, this is the guy. Okay, we found the Messiah, the Christ, which both of those words are kind of translated anointed one, or they mean anointed one. This is the guy. So they get, how did they get there so fast? And I guess that kind of goes back to that question of where was the existential crisis here? Where was, all, where was this moment of inner questioning that they must have had? When Jesus said, hey, quit your jobs, leave your homes, follow me, they just went, okay. It's the same thing here. They're, they're saying, this is the guy. Why? What's in between rabbi and Messiah here? What's in between where they call him rabbi and they call him Messiah? Where's all the juicy stuff that we want from a memoir, an autobiography? I was recently reading a, um, a book. It was a collection of essays by the late author and thinker David Foster Wallace. And he was writing a book review on a sports autobiography by a woman named Tracy. Yeah, Tracy Austin. She was a, I had never heard of her before, but she was like a child prodigy in tennis. 
Um, she had become a, a world master, whatever you call it, I don't care, in tennis at a very young age when she was a teenager. And um, he, he was reading this biography and, and kind of went off on this tangent of how terrible sports biographies are. And if you've read sports biographies before, I mean, there's a few good ones probably, like autobi I'm talking about autobiographies and memoirs written by athletes. They're usually really bad, right? And it's, it's almost the same thing as if you've ever listened to a post-game interview by an athlete, it's just like there's like 10 things they say and they just kind of cycle through them, right? Well, you know, Johnny, how, 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 how did you win that game? Why did you decide to do this? Well, you know, it's, I, I got to tell you, it was a team effort. It was a team effort. We just take it one game, one week at a time, put in 110%. You know, it's the same thing over and over again. And that's basically what a lot of sports autobiographies and memoirs are, is that over and over again. And that's what this memoir, and if, if you ever talk to Tracy Austin, I'm sorry, I'm sure she's a good person, but the memoir was very bad, the parts that I read from this review. And he's asking, why is that? I want to go into, like, man, why did you decide to make... Why did you decide to do this in a game or in a match? What was going on in your head? This, this woman had actually, she'd taken this painstaking, you know, step when she was an adult to try to get back into tennis. And she was just about to play in this huge match. And she got in a car accident, was never able to do it again. And he was looking for, like, why did you, like, what was going on in your head when that happened? And basically all that she wrote in the book was, this happened, couldn't do anything about it, and I moved on. It's the same stuff as, you know, these sports cliches that people say um, after, after games. And he's asking, why is that? And I, and I was reading this as I was thinking about this sermon. I was like, man, this is why I have a problem with these passages. Because I feel like I'm not getting anything. They're, they're still leaving me outside of the curtain. They're, they're not taking me into what's going on here. And he said, he made this observation that this is why they were good athletes. This was actually not... A dumb thing, like it's not just a dumb jock thing that, that maybe some of us assume when we hear all these cliches spouted over and over again. They actually need those cliches. They need those little truths because you can't go into an existential crisis every time that you have to throw a football or, you know, run a race or something. Like you need to have these simple truths in your head and just go with it. They just need to go with it. It would actually be worse for them, and we would not be reading a book by them if they had all this inner turmoil every time they had to do something. The situation that they were in demands a simple, cliche thought. Keep your eyes on the ball. One game at a time, one pitch at a time. That maybe in an interview sounds a little vapid, it sounds a little shallow, but that's, that's how they, it was actually smart because that's what they needed to do in their situation. And so why, in between, what, what's in between Rabbi and Messiah here for the disciples that makes their, yeah, okay, I'm going to follow you. Why does it make it make sense? What happened in between? They met with Jesus. They, they met with Jesus. They stayed with Jesus. They hung out with Jesus in his house. So 4 p.m. was the time a lot of people got off work at that time, and... I mean, I guess this is very similar to now, but they had a, their, their main meal of the day was after that. Jesus almost certainly, when they were at his house, would have offered them a meal. He would have 
hosted them for a meal, talked with them over dinner. We don't know what they said. We don't know exactly what happened there, but we know from having the rest of the story, the rest of John, the rest of Matthew, the rest of Mark, the rest of Luke, who they were staying with, don't we? Even if we don't know what was said. We know they stayed with someone who was acquainted with grief. He was acquainted with the plight of the world, but he was also filled with joy in his father. They stayed with someone whose stomach twisted with compassion when he saw the crowds coming to him. They stayed with someone who knew them and who knew their hearts more truly and deeply than they could have. They stayed with someone who got deeply, viscerally angry at the false religion and and the hypocrisy of the day, flipping tables at the temple and calling Pharisees and Sadducees broods of vipers. They met with someone who didn't fit into the fallen cultural religious system of the day. He rejected the false heart of the Pharisees. He called out the false beliefs of the Sadducees. Against the violence of the zealots, he proclaimed a kingdom that would not be won by knives and swords, while also rejecting the Essenes who hid their light under a bushel and proclaimed, um, and instead he proclaimed to the watching world the gospel so that they could know God. They stayed with someone who spoke with the very authoritative voice of Yahweh and yet was called, he called himself, he identified his own heart as gentle and lowly. And he promised us real rest and refreshment. There's this book. um, I I was going to bring it up, but I didn't. Uh, Gentle and Lowly. That was written um, a a few years ago by a pastor in our denomination. And it blew up. Which was, in a way, weird. Like it was a a kind of little mini phenomenon. Because it didn't say anything new. It didn't have any new argument. It quoted a few Puritans and... It was, it, was, it was written pretty well, um, but it didn't say anything new. And it blew up. And, and some people, including me, I was wondering, like, why, why is this so popular and why is this hitting me on a different level? I read it and I cried at a few places, honestly. Why is this hitting me on a different level? Um, knowing that all of this is just coming from the Bible. He's just writing from, from Scripture. And he, he made an argument that Jesus, instead of being repelled by sin and suffering, is actually drawn near to sinners and sufferers. That's what draws him near. I was reading an article about this and and why it was so crazy that how many books this sold um, that was was saying about this, that the sense of fear and law are, we have this sense that fear and law are really what motivate obedience and that grace and forgiveness lower the stakes. And that's programmed into our self-righteous consciousness, consciousness every bit as much as breaking the laws, licentiousness. But of course, fear and law cannot sufficiently motivate obedience even if we try to make them. That's exactly why Jesus says in his gentle and lowly spirit that he offers rest to the weary and heavy laden. What our institutions say, when our institutions say that the promises and mercies of Christ are the whipped cream and cherry on top, but that, but that our obligations and performance are the real entree, we end each day feeling, a little, feeling little else but exhaustion. It's because we, we are wired to be legalists. We are wired to be Pharisees, adding laws on top of ourselves and mired in sin and guilt. But they met somebody who was offering refreshment. They met somebody that was offering refreshment to themselves and away from 
this broken, this false religion that they were surrounded by. When they met and stayed with Jesus, the situation demanded a simple but clear answer. This is the guy. This is the Messiah. He's the one that provides refreshment. He, they found him to be refreshing to their souls. They found him to be offering a way of real worship to the Father. They found him to be the Messiah. And so when they say, yep, I'm, I'm done. I'm, I'm, I'm leaving my life. I'm, I'm out of here. It makes sense. It's the only answer that does, like the athlete who, who's got to say, keep, just got had to keep my eye on the ball one game at a time. That's the only answer that made sense. It's not crazy. It's not dumb. It's not foolish. I'm reminded of the quote by Jim Elliott. He's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It makes sense that when Jesus said, follow me, they said, all right, okay. If that's really the Messiah, if he can really give me new life and if he can really provide some refreshing, true, beautiful religion, way of worshiping God the Father, away from all the false religion and can show true worship, is, th is there really a need for an existential crisis or an inner dialogue? I'm not saying that they always were like that or they never had any doubts. In fact, we know a very famous example of Peter, who we're about to talk about, denied Jesus. I'm not saying that they all had it perfect, and I'm not even saying to be like the disciples. What I'm saying is to meet with Jesus. If you're having these, all of these problems with the brokenness in the church, if you need refreshment, come to Jesus. And when you actually do see him, when, when your eyes are actually open to that, when Jesus says, follow me, it's an easy answer. Verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You should be called Cephas, which means Peter. So if you're looking at verse 42, this leads us to a refreshed self. So refreshed to the point where you need a new name. So when he says, you shall be called Cephas, that was the, Jesus probably spoke Aramaic. And so that's an Aramaic word. Um, and John translate this, translates this to Peter, which he's often called, which means rock. That's where the, we get the word petrified from, rockified, right? From the Greek here, Peter. So that can be really, so if somebody just came up to me and like renamed me, that'd probably be pretty offensive, right? So what's going on here? What's going on in this passage? Well, there's a few other places in the Bible where God changes people's names. God changed Abram's name in the Old Testament. His name, um, Abram meant high father to Abraham, meaning father of a multitude. God changed Abraham's wife's name from Sarai, meaning um, something like princess, to Sarah, meaning mother of nations. God changed Jacob's name, which meant um, supplanter to Israel, meaning wrestles with God or having power with God. In in need of a refreshment. There were times in the Bible where God's people were scattered and God needed to do something fresh with them. He needed to do something new. Um, this is something covenantal, it seems like God does. When he's doing something new with his people, he gives a new name. So when he calls Simon Peter, 
That was his declaration. We can see this later on in Matthew 16 where it says that, Peter, you're the rock, and on this rock I'm going to build my church. We are a part of this new, refreshed people who are founded on the rock of Jesus Christ and his gospel. He's doing something fresh with us, so fresh, needs a new name. So you see these three translated names here, Rabbi, Messiah, and Peter, that kind of shows the progression of following Jesus. He was a, first, they saw Jesus as a rabbi, good religious teacher, good advice. And then, man, this is actually, this is the Messiah. And when you believe that, your whole identity is refreshed to the point of having a new name indicating your foundation in that truth of Jesus. You're seeing, um, and, and these other words take on greater meaning too. Following with your feet becomes following with your soul, your whole self. Seeing Jesus with your eyes becomes seeing spiritual truth with your heart. Why? Because staying with Jesus leads to staying with Jesus. This is one of John's favorite words. This word for stay is the same word that's used later for abide. I am the truth. This is John 15. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch that is in me that does not bear fruit, he will take away. And every branch that, he, that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I had spoken about you. Abide in me and I in you. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Skipping down here a little bit. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever, whatever you shall wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. So this word for abide takes on a meaning of you stayed with me. You, you, you literally abided with me in my home. And that leads into actually abiding with Jesus, abiding in him as he abides in us, staying with him. So how do we meet with Jesus? How do we do that? Because we don't get to, you know, be in the flesh with him. We don't get to have, you know, a meal where Jesus in the flesh sits down and hands us food and talks to us about our lives, what we're seeking, right? We acknowledge the desperate state that we're in. We acknowledge, man, there is so much brokenness in the world, and I am prone to fall away. I am prone to leave. We look for him. Here in John, we're going through John right now. This very easy application in one way, but in another way, like tune into this spiritually. Tune into this. Are you actually paying attention to who Jesus is in this gospel? Don't. It's easy to... Read things that we've read before and just assume everything. But read, who is Jesus? What's his heart here? Linger over him. Linger over the places where Jesus says what his heart is and does, thing that he, does things that he says reveals who he is. Ask him in prayer, like he's there as he is, like he's in the room with you. So we come, we come to Jesus for refreshment. Jesus says, ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened to you. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. We cannot follow Jesus, church, without Jesus. We cannot be disciples of Jesus without Jesus. And it sounds very obvious, but it needs to be said because so often we, we lean on our own works. We lean on our own selves to follow Jesus. We start following Jesus. We go through the motions. We play church and we forget about Jesus. 
Let's meet with them this week. Let me pray. God, we do pray that we would find ways to stay with you, to actually meet with you as we can in your word, in prayer. We cannot live in this this world where there is so much brokenness. There's so much that wants to pull us away from you without you. We need refreshment. Even from the ordinary things of, of, of even parts of true religion and discipleship, God, it's, it's hard. Um, it's, it's hard being a Christian. It's hard following you. We need you, Lord. Please come and refresh us. Amen.